morning, ladies. Last week, Diana took us through a passage that R. Kent Hughes describes as a seething denunciation of the rich oppressors who had reduced James's audience to miserable poverty. He continues on to say that life was hard for these believers, and this hardness particularly made them long for the return of Christ. Those words, long for the return of Christ, made me stop to consider what effect this type of forward thinking should have in our lives of faith. Picture this scene from Acts 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, two men stood, behind them, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The first century believers were anxiously awaiting the Lord's return, his second coming. They were looking forward with anticipation to the literal, physical return of Christ, being alongside Christ's presence again. For believers today, this type of daily, moment-to-moment -moment longing, from, at me at least, seems to be a little bit more ethereal, abstract, even somewhat theoretical, not for those early believers. They were waiting for the again of Christ's presence. Our longing can even be overshadowed by lives of relative ease. But for first century believers, life was moment to moment hard, and they longed for Christ's return. So James encourages them to allow their forward focus to shape their behavior. We need the same encouragement. Forward thinking, thinking toward eternity, should fuel our faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord and Savior, Comforter, where were you, where were we, when you laid the foundation of the earth? Where were we? That question alone is reason to submit to you to draw near to you with the promise that you'll draw near to us. Lord, in this process, will you make our ears not only hear, but make our eyes see, so that our hearts become molded to reflect your glory. May we be renewed in the knowledge that you are eternally beyond us, for us, and with us. Through your grace, amen. James 5, 7 through 12. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring or early and fall, late rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's steadfastness, perseverance, and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, or you will be condemned. James fills this passage with several weighty instructions. Be patient, stand firm, don't grumble, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So we're going to concentrate on those first three instructions now and cover the others in your discussion groups. The first directive is found in verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. What a straightforward statement. A blunt, mic drop type of statement. I mean, I seriously doubt that any of James' readers or listeners had to question James' meaning. I don't think they said, so James, in light of our entire situation, what are you saying we should do? James leaves no doubt. Be patient, brothers. Okay, sure, James, sure. Be patient, um, but for how long? Until the Lord's coming. Not be patient until your oppressors get what they deserve. Not be patient until they break your last straw, which will, of course, give you every right to blow a gasket. As James begins the process of closing his letter, he cycles back to the topic of patience that he addressed in chapter 1, verse 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, depending on your translation, steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, patience. But what I found interesting was that the Greek word used at the beginning of the letter, in the verse that I just read in, verse one, in chapter 1, 3, has its framework in a sense of abiding under, continuance, endurance, constancy. The Greek lexicon applies that word that was used in 1.3 in this way, in these circumstances. Um, it's continuance and endurance under trials, or in trials incident to serving the gospel, or under chastisement, under undeserved affliction, in well-doing, in fruit-bearing. That's the kind of patience James was referring to in 1.3. And that type of patience was certainly required through the experiences of James's audience. But it remains central to representing Christ in any time period. However, James chooses a different Greek word in, in verses 7, 8, and 10 of chapter 5. The word the Holy Spirit gives to James there holds believers to another level of accountability in their patience. It's a compound word, macrothumia. I have no idea if that's correct, but I, I got the emphasis right. I know how to do a little uh, accent mark. And so it's, it's a compound word literally meaning long-tempered, long-enduring temper, a long fuse versus a short fuse. Stephen J. Cole describes this type of patience as, quote, the self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate a wrong. The self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate a wrong. This word for patience incorporates how we respond to people. People who may be oppressing you, wronging you, 
irritating or annoying you or getting their way at the expense of your way. This patience is personal. It goes beyond asking us to endure adverse circumstances and instructs us to lengthen our personal fuse of response. Think about it. A lengthened fuse should lead to responses that reflect the wisdom from above. Back in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, the wisdom from above is pure, pure in motive, peaceable. Do your responses consider the good of the group? Gentle, no room for outbursts. Open to reason, willingly and involuntarily considering other viewpoints. Full of mercy and good fruit, no room for retaliation. Impartial, that means your responses don't show favoritism. There's no room for giving preference to one side or one person over the other, which, by the way, means not giving preferences to your own preferences. And sincere, honest and open about your own faults. The length of your personal fuse will determine how long it takes before your response occurs. The longer, the better. That's my experience. Giving more time for application of wisdom in that response. My personal practice of patience definitely has a time component. But many times I take it upon myself to determine how long my fuse of patience needs to be, depending on the given day, the person, the situation, and the degree of privacy allowed for my response. But look at the time-sensitive words sprinkled throughout these five verses. Until the Lord's coming, wait for the harvest. Think about your times of waiting, waiting for your turn as a child, or now even. Maybe you still like, don't like waiting for your turn. Waiting for your turn or for something to begin or something to end, or something to arrive, or something to depart, or something to be resolved, or something to be restored. Being patient requires setting aside our desire for something to happen now and establishing or setting our hearts on something other than what or who is currently calling for our patience. This is where the prepositional phrase in verse 7 comes into our practice of patience. Until. It's not until fill in the blank. Until you've had it. Until you're over it. Until that person needs to hear the truth. No, it's until the Lord's coming. Listen to the first sen sentence of the passage again. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. Fortunately, I hear more than waiting in that sentence. I hear surety in James's voice. The outcome is certain. The implanted word, chapter 121, that implanted word will bring forth the completion of salvation with the return of the Lord. James lays out an eternal object of, for our patience. An eternal orientation should reorient my preferences. Be patient because finally... Turn with me to 2 Peter 3, 3 to 9. I'll give you a second. If you were open to James, you're right there. Second Peter 3, 3 to 9. 
says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and with water. And by water also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Eternity should be the framework for our patience because patience is the nature of our creator. Eternity should be the framework for our patience because patience is the nature of our creator. Verse 9 says the Lord is patient with you. Peter uses the same Greek word James uses in his directive, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. God is patient with people. He doesn't hastily retaliate a wrong. William Barclay made this point, quote, the great obligation which rests on the Christian is just this, he must be patient with his fellow men as God has been with him. By setting our minds on the certainty of eternal resolution, we can be equipped to lengthen our fuses as we practice patience. I'm sure you've all used a retractable cord on a vacuum, you know, and you pull it out, and if you're like me, I get tired of pulling because there's tension, and I pull and I think, yeah, that'll be enough, and I start on my merry way, and I get going, and I look back, and I think I'm close, but I think I can finish it, and I just go on ahead a few more feet, and sure enough, it yanks the cord off of the wall and I have no power and I can't finish my job and now I'm irritated because I am interrupted and I've got to walk clear back over there and plug it back in and probably pull out a little more cord and I might find out that there's no more cord left to pull out but the good news is is when we pull out our fuse of patience the source of our patience never runs out we aren't the source of our patience if we are believers in Christ and have the Holy Spirit. God is the source of our patience. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We can pull out some more, but we've got to take the time to think, ah, oh, I've come to the end of what I have, and I need to go back to my resource and lengthen my fuse. So that brings us to the second instruction of the passage. Verse 8, be patient and stand firm. Establish your hearts, because the Lord's coming is at hand. I read a teaching by John MacArthur on this passage, and he was very succinct, and it was really helpful, so I'm just going to share it with you. He writes, and I quote, The Greek word used here is also used in Luke 9.51 to describe Jesus as he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He established his face, he steadfastly set it. The word connotes an attitude of firm courage, of commitment to moving ahead in your faith no matter the trial. 
The word literally means, the root of the word, is prop, meaning to prop yourself up. When you're about, MacArthur goes on, when you're about to collapse under persecution from people or circumstances, prop yourself up with the hope of the second coming and renew your patience. James connects the practice of patience to a heart established by the certainty of the Lord's coming. An established heart, a heart standing firm, looks forward to the until, when Christ's return brings the salvation of our finally, of our forever. Now with the third instruction, James gets even more practical and personally a little bit too personal. Verse 9 says, don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. Back in chapter 4, James addressed the fights and quarrels among the believers, and he bluntly told them that those tensions came from, quote, your desires that battle within you. You want something, but don't get it. He went on to instruct them not to slander one another. But now in verse 9, James uses a word, grumble, and he uses that word to dig deeper down into our hearts. Donald Burdick writes in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, he, he explains the, the meaning of that word grumble, because I think it's going to be different than what you think. It's different than what I thought. Grumbling, it speaks of inner distress more than open complaint. This refers to the unexpressed feeling of bitterness or the smothered resentment that may express itself in a groan or a sigh, either audible or suppressed. You know, I, I have that ability, and I'm guessing all of you do too. You've learned how to keep it quiet, but inside you are groaning, moaning, sighing. Not only is James stripping us of the practice of quarreling and slandering, now he starts picking at our inner thoughts. Grumbling addresses the hidden tongue of the heart. My heart has the propensity to rejoice in a very highly intermittent mastery of keeping my mouth closed. But James calls me to soberly acknowledge that my substitutionary eye rolls, whether visible or hidden, are in fact grumbling. They silently express inner distress, feelings of bitterness, and smothered resentment. In my teenage years, my mother could hear my eyes rolling from two rooms away. And I am not kidding you. She would call it out. I'm like, how does she know that I'm over here going? But she could. The battle from within is timeless and tireless. James makes the point here about grumbling against one another, that if we as believers are waiting together for Christ, then our unified waiting should be accompanied by positive relationships. Relationships devoid of quarrels, slanderous statements, and silent grumbling. Believers are called to be patient with one another, both outwardly and inwardly. And to strengthen his exhortations, James provides three illustrations. It made my outline really easy. I mean, he, he gave some instructions, then he gave three illustrations. It's just perfect. It just couldn't be better. But he gives us these three, the farmer, the prophets, and Job. And he begins with a present-day, very 
tangible example, probably from their own experience with the farmer, and then he moves backwards through their shared legacy of followers of the one true God. He goes back to prophets, then clear back to Job. So first, farmers. I come from a family of farmers. One cousin lives on our great-grandfather's farmstead, which is just down the road from where another cousin lives on my great-uncle's farmstead, which is just around the corner from where my uncle lives and farms, and with whom my dad still deals up in shuttling loads to the elevator. And those properties are only about a mile, as the crow flies, from the farm where my other great-grandparents birthed my grandfather, where my mother was raised, and where I played in the corn cribs. I'd get farmers, but I couldn't be one. Waiting on the fall and spring rains and waiting for the land to yield its valuable crop, mm, that would exceed my reservoir of patience, and I probably wouldn't pull out more. It is just way too much out of my control in farming. I looked for a man who didn't want to farm, and now Bryce wants to farm in his in retirement. <laughs> I was just sure he wouldn't farm right? <laughs> He'd like to farm in his retirement. Um, but the fact that there's way too much out of my control is exactly the point of James's illustration. James is calling believers then and now to a life characterized by hopeful expectancy. Now, for those of us whose livelihoods don't directly revolve around daily readings from multiple rain gauges, this whole idea of waiting patiently for the fall and spring rains is purely academic. But for the farmers reading James's original letter, whose lives depended on knowing that the early fall rains made field preparation, planting, and germination possible, that the heavy rains provided plant development and growth, and that the spring rains finished producing the fruit and increased the yield, for those farmers, they understood the cycle. They understood the angst of waiting for the fall, waiting for the early and late rains. As Kent Hughes writes, these rains represent a process apart from which there can be no harvest. All farmers must patiently submit to this process, to fight against it, to insist they must have fruit in the middle of the process is futile. They're to wait in positive confidence that the process will take place and that there will be an invaluable harvest in this case, the second coming. The key is to submit expectantly while trusting wholeheartedly, patiently, in his goodness and faithfulness. Douglas Moo says this about early rains, the early and late rains. Quote, every Old Testament reference to these rains occurs in a context affirming the faithfulness of the Lord. It points to his faithfulness. The farmer, the believer, does his part of the work, preparing the soil and sowing the seeds, and then waits for God to work out the eternal harvest, for God to display his faithfulness. The farmer looks expectantly for something outside of himself. Yes, the farmer does his part of the work, but no crop ever comes to fruition without God's provision. This mindset fosters an attitude of hopeful expectancy. The harvest depends wholly on the work that God surely will complete. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. 
In verse 10, we see the second illustration. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered, who have remained steadfast. It appears that James may be reverting back to addressing patience in the face of suffering, but think about the suffering the prophets faced. The prophets suffered at the hands of those who didn't like the words of the Lord they were delivering. Take, for instance, Jeremiah, whose name literally means Yahweh establishes. For over 40 years, Jeremiah obediently spoke the words of of God to the people, and he was repaid by being beaten, put in the stocks, left to die of starvation in a muddy cistern, imprisoned, etc. Yet listen to the words ascribed to Jeremiah from Lamentations 3, 21 through 26. Listen to Jeremiah's steadfast heart. Listen to his commitment to move ahead in his faith no matter the trial. Jeremiah writes, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait him to the soul who seeks him it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the lord the lives of the prophets highlight how willing obedience connects to the practice of quietly waiting for the salvation of the lord believers are encouraged to willingly persevere in doing right with their eyes set on future blessing romans 8:18 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Forward thinking clears the way for willing obedience. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James offers the life of Job as his final illustration of a steadfast, established heart of faith. Have you ever heard the idiom used to describe someone, oh, so-and-so has the patience of Job? So in our day and age, I wondered what a Google search of that phrase would produce. And the first hit was remarkably accurate. Others were not, which is also a trademark of a Google search. But it said, I I really like this definition. It makes me wonder if the person who wrote it had some understanding more than just uh, academic understanding of the idiom, patience of Job. They said, has the patience of Job, a reference to the biblical figure Job, correct so far, whose absolute faith in God remained unshakable despite the numerous afflictions set upon himself, his family, and his estate by Satan. Absolute faith in God, unshaken despite. Absolute I looked it up. We, we think we know what absolutes are in math, you know, the absolutes, and you, they can't, you, you understand what the word is, but I thought, I wonder how they uh, boil it down. And this is how it was boiled down. Absolute, independent and unmodifiable, not depending on or qualified by anything else. Unmodifiable, 
I told the ladies yesterday as we were talking about it, I'd never used that word before. I'd never put those prefixes and suffixes on modify. But when you say it, it's really fun, unmodifiable. It just keeps going. And then you say, oh, that means you can't modify it. I can't modify. Oh, yeah, that's good. Unmodifiable. The book of Job opens with a conversation, and the book of Job's whole purpose is to show us unmodifiable faith. It opens with a conversation between Yahweh, the God who was and is and is to come, and Satan, whose name means accuser. So Satan makes this accusation. He says that Job fears God, not for who God is, but for what God has given him. So God allows Satan to strip Job of all his earthly possessions, but not his physical health. And by the end of the first chapter, all of his oxen, donkeys, sheep, camels, servants, and ten children have been taken from him. Job's response? He falls to the ground in worship and says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. This immediate response is evidence of a heart established in the understanding of God's sovereignty. So Satan returns to accuse Job's faith of resting on his own health, and God permits an onslaught of physical suffering, just short of taking Job's life. Job's wife finds him covered with sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And, this is, and she asks him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Job's response, he says, you're talking like a foolish. The word means morally deficient. You're talking like a morally deficient woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? While wrestling with the incomprehensible nature of God and no answers for why this suffering was occurring, Job did not sin in what he said. So then his friends come alongside to sympathize and comfort Job. And for seven days and nights, they, they sit in silence. And Job finally breaks the silence, which initiates three cycles of accusatory conversations. His companions approach Job's plight from a false premise. They approach it like this. If God is just and loving, the righteous will always be blessed and the wicked will always suffer. That's a comfortable premise if you declare yourself to be in the camp of the righteous. They wanted to uncover the sin of unrepentance in Job's life in order to prove their point and confirm their position of safety from calamity. They had declared themselves in the camp of the righteous. But as Ray Stedman points out in his book, Let God Be God, it says, he, said, he writes, sometimes we suffer because our affliction accomplishes God's purposes. The most innocent man ever to have lived and died on the cross, not as died, I'm sorry, let me say that again. The most innocent man ever to live suffered and died on the cross, not as an evildoer, not because he deserved to suffer, but because he was carrying out God's purpose in the world. Those were Ray Stedman's comments, not mine. In fact, I hadn't ever really thought about that. That the most innocent man ever to live suffered and died because he was carrying out God's purpose 
not for any other reason. Two weeks ago, Kathy gave us a visual for God's ultimate purpose, the great exchange. I loved that visual. And she captioned Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, quote, God's purposes prevail. So as God's purposes are on the way to prevailing in Job's life, Ray Stedman writes, Job trembles, falters, questions, complains, and pleads with God. But he never stops demonstrating his faith in God. The greatest faith is that which is demonstrated when we feel the least faithful. When we feel so weak we can't do anything but cling to genuine faith. Job's weakened cries of faith are a comfort and encouragement to me. The same man who knew that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, and that all of life is under God's sovereign rule, also said things like this, Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. Remember, O God, that my life is but a breath. My eyes will never see happiness again. When troubles come, it's easy to begin doubting God's character. Instead, James instructs us to prop up our hearts with an accurate understanding of God's unchanging nature. Job's faith was bruised, but intact because he had identified God's nature and had placed his trust and faith in that nature. I want to go through a little exercise here. We're going to listen to a few of Job's words that identify God's nature. I, thought, I found it so interesting as I read some of his, his words. It said, so in 1619, I won't give you all the references. You can see me later if you want them. But he says, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. God is transcendent and just. To God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. What he, tear down, what he tears down cannot be rebuilt. The man he imprisoned cannot be released. If he holds back the waters, there's drought. If he lets them loose, they devastate the land. To him belong strength and victory. Both deceived and deceiver are his. All wise, omnipotent, sovereign. Where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know the way to it and it's not found in the land of the living. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. All wise. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth, omniscient, omnipotent, and immutable. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold, omniscient and good. I know that you can do all things. This is Job after the whole thing in chapter 42. I know... I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Sovereignty. God's purposes prevail. Job's understanding of God's unchanging nature informed his soul toward absolute faith. Faith unmodifiable by circumstances, surroundings, and people. The testing of Job's faith reminds me of a song by Mercy Me entitled, Even If. The beginning of the song poses a question. It, it poses this question. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring you down, 
But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? Satan wanted to know what Job would say when held to the flame. And I can hear Job saying the lyrics. They say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing, because a little faith is all I have right now. But God, when you choose to, make, to leave mountains unmovable, oh, give me the strength to be able to sing, it is well with my soul. Then I hear Job reminding himself of God's character with more of the lyrics. You've been faithful, you've been good all my days. Yahweh, I will cling to you, come what may. And then Job could sing the chorus as a statement of faith in God's sovereignty and ultimate purpose, salvation. I know you're able and I know you can save through the fire with your mighty hand, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. I know the sorrow and I know the hurt would all go away if you just say the word, but even if you don't, my hope is you alone. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Our concept of God needs to be constantly enlarged and deep tissue massaged into our hearts. We cry out to God while clinging to faith. We prop up our faith by reminding ourselves of his faithful, immutable attributes. And we declare ourselves willing to patiently wait on the Lord. And then we do it again. Job's suffering accomplished God's purposes. Verse 11 records that through Job's perseverance and steadfastness, we can see the Lord's compassion and mercy. Job's suffering put the Lord's compassion and mercy on display. Job's suffering brought glory to the name of the Lord. James calls us to be patient until, until the Lord's coming. And in the meantime, believers are to live as the farmer with hopeful expectancy, resting in the full assurance that the one who promised is faithful. We're to live as the prophets with willing obedience, following God's truth as God patiently waits for us to increasingly bring honor and glory to his name. And we're to live as Job with absolute faith, unmodifiable faith, faith which relentlessly reminds ourselves of God's unchanging character. In closing, I just want to quote a couple of scriptures, just one actually, um, of Paul's words in Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. May this forward thinking, thinking toward eternity, fuel our faith. Be patient because finally. Amen.